0: Great. All right, if you would, I'm going to ask you to please turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, and uh, I'm going to ask Tim Brown to come. Tim, if you would just read that portion for us. Luke chapter 15.
1: Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him. To listen to him, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. So he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been, fo- has been found. And they began to celebrate.
0: Great. Thanks, Tim. Great job. There is so much to say, I feel like my heart is so full, and uh, just trying to narrow it down to this portion. Uh, just for outline's sake, there's nothing uh, inspirational about it, it's just to, to help us to be able to think through this portion. Let me give it to you rather quickly, and then we're going to kind of jump in. We're going to skip uh, some of these more salient points, I believe. But the first point is this, in verse 1, really the first two verses, hope and hostility in preaching. Hope slash hostility in preaching. Two responses to the same message has to do with the heart of the listener. Then the second point in the outline would be a harmony of the parables. There's three parables here. There's a golden thread, as it were, that works its way through uh, all three parables, uh, engaging as it is. Then the third point would be the uh, homecoming of the prodigal. And then the fourth would be the hostility of the perfect, of the older brother. That's the outline for the whole chapter. We're not going to get through the entire chapter. We're really going to primarily focus on the third point the prodigal and uh, his homecoming um, trying to keep these things straight in my mind trying to, trying to keep these things straight in, uh, in the order in which they fall here in this portion is a challenge um, but uh, I'm, I'm so thankful for this portion we're just a few months before the crucifixion Jesus has been involved in the ministry now for two and a half plus years. They're on their way to Jerusalem. And um, there are some things that are challenging to us. Jesus says, which one among you, and he goes on to explain the parable of the lost sheep. But what's in that statement is, is the... Profound wisdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and his mastery of teaching. Now, you have to understand from the book of Isaiah that when Jesus spoke in parables, and this is often misunderstood, when Jesus spoke in parables, he wasn't explaining or exemplifying a masterful way of teaching, of storytelling. There are books written about that. But Isaiah says that the primary reason that God would speak in parables is that it was a judgment to Israel. There are some fringe benefits in Jesus' masterful teaching. He would always take the known, the familiar, to teach the unknown, the unfamiliar. But it was a connecting link. That's no different here. Part of our problem as we live in the 21st century is to be able to go back to the first century and understand what's being said, what's being taught, and understand that from as Jesus teaches these parables, he's not using a historical context, but a cultural context, a culture in which to us in the 21st century is somewhat foreign, including Dress, manners, values. So this morning we come to this portion at the invitation of Jesus Christ. When he says, what man, what man among you? And then later, what woman among you? It's actually an invitation. He's engaging everybody personally. The wisdom that Jesus uses in this portion is really profound. Charles Dickens says that the parable of the prodigal son is the most magnificent short story he's ever read. I appreciate that evaluation. I'm glad we got the right letter by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I was reminded of a situation that happened not too long ago Young couple, entrepreneurs in New England, had decided they had had enough of their business, uh, busyness of their business, that they were going to take a break and go to Florida for a few days. But uh, business kind of won out. They had, to, they had to take separate flights. The, father, the husband went first, and the wife was to follow in a couple of days. The husband finally got to his destination in Florida and decided he would fire back a email to his wife, letting, him, letting her know that he got there safely and so on. But in firing off the email, he missed one letter. And instead of the letter going to his wife back in New England, the email actually went to a pastor's wife out in Iowa who had just returned home from the memorial service of her pastor's husband, who died a few days earlier. she got home, she sat down at the computer and opened her email, and she saw that that morning of the memorial service for her husband, there was an email from her husband. And she passed out immediately, came to, called one of her friends to come over and read the email, and so she came over and opened the email, and it said this, Dear Sweetheart, just want you to know that I arrived safely. The trip was longer than I thought, but you'll, you'll love it here. I'm very anxious for you to arrive tomorrow afternoon, <laughs> and I anxiously await your arrival. P.S. The heat is unbearable down here. One letter. Well, we got the right letter. And we have the right teacher. You'll notice in verse one, really the first two verses, we're invited by Jesus. Now, for sake of our appreciation and understanding, Jesus engages all of us in, in, these, in this teaching. But I want you to think of it in terms uh, of a play. What Jesus is telling us in this story, particularly these parables, is that they're not, they're not true stories. They're not based on historical fact. In fact, Jesus made them up. But Jesus has a targeted audience in mind. And the audience is broad. We would come into this theater where this play would be acted out, and we would see two very distinct parts of the audience. The tax collectors and sinners and the scribes and the Pharisees. And the scribes and the Pharisees, they would be seated, excuse me, not only in the seats that would have the best view, but they would be seated in the seats that were clearest in view so that people could see them. The scribes, And Pharisees met the teaching of Jesus with anger and hostility. But the publicans and the sinners met it with hope. You see in verse 1, it says, And all the publicans, don't miss the words there, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. What a great statement. I wonder if that's true of our churches. That the teaching of Jesus Christ is so clear that people come because they want to hear him, because they're hopeful. They're not two different messages. Every time Jesus preached, he preached the truth. But the response was different. The tax collectors, notice what it says. All of the tax collectors were there. What Luke is saying here and I love the Gospel of Luke Luke is a physician. He is given to detail. All the might, some might think to be the minutiae. but Luke is careful to make sure as he records history, that he does it in completion. All of the tax collectors. Hello Levi. Hello, Matthew. Hey, Zacchaeus, how are you? All of the tax collectors are there because they wanted to hear him. Why? Because from the mouth of Jesus Christ and from his heart, they got hope. It says something about our preaching, doesn't it? Yeah, or it should. It says something about our effective witness of giving hope. And yet, with the scribes and Pharisees, they just got more and more angry. This is a summary statement, not just in the context of this setting, but this has been the case all through the the ministry of Jesus Christ. He gave hope. He offered solution to their conflict. Now listen, God has given every single one of us this morning that are here an invitation And God wants us to engage our mind, now get this, our mind, our will, and our emotion. And Jesus is going to teach something from this parable that is so uniquely profound because there is an accent on the emotion of God the Father. In this play, there are three characters. There is the father, there is the younger son, and there is the older son. The father represents God the father in heaven. The younger son is represented, representative of the tax collectors and sinners. The older brother is representative of the self-righteous Pharisees and scribes. Jesus knew exactly who his target audience would be. You may be here, and I want to tell you, between the tax collectors and sinners and the scribes and Pharisees, it includes everybody in between. You may be here this morning in earshot of this message, and you're in your mind and in your heart. You have stepped beyond the lines of grace gone beyond God's grace and you've fallen far short of his mercy. You're in despair. Your life may seem hopeless. Everything in between. I want to tell you there is hope in this message for you. We sang the old familiar hymn Just As I Am Without One Plea. really it's a hymn of hope but it's a hymn of desperation about one who thought that they were beyond God's grace only to find out that just as I am God receives me now that's part of part of the audience that uh, Jesus is speaking to Then you'll notice there are three parables. And there's a harmony to all three parables. Uh, I was looking at several commentaries and uh, I'm really thankful for men like Tim Keller, John MacArthur, D. Edmund Hebert. There are several others who have done profound expositions on Luke chapter 15. But it seems to me it's like You can look at Luke chapter 15 from a a lot of different angles and see uh, different truths. But I want to focus on some things that I think that are not so obvious. You have to excuse me. I'm uh, I'm using my Kindle fire to read the scripture only because I can put it in bigger print. And my screen keeps going dark, so bear with me with that, please. So you've got three parables. One is with regard to a shepherd who owns a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep is lost. And he leaves the 99 in the open field, and he goes after the one. he finds it, puts it over his shoulders, rejoicing. And he comes back and he calls all of his friends and neighbors to come and join in the celebration. And he says in verse 7 let me grab it here. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. That's the point. That's the point of that parable. And what you'll see in all three of these parables is the matter of repentance and rejoicing and restoration. What's interesting to me is there is a man, and the commentaries basically preach three messages one from each parable but as I read the portion to me there is a thread that's woven through all three parables and Jesus engages everybody to identify with what he is saying and they do they do identify he lost the sheep it's interesting to me That uh, probably one shepherd doesn't take care of a hundred sheep. There are what John calls, John, in chapter 10 of his gospel, calls the hireling. These are guys that are just hired to do the menial tasks of taking care of the sheep. What's interesting to me in this context is that it's the shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. And he doesn't send one of the hirelings. Why? Because a hireling is not committed. A hireling is committed to take care of the sheep. But he doesn't care for the sheep. It's the shepherd that's willing to lay down his life for the sheep. So in the parable, the shepherd himself goes out. Why? Because he doesn't know where the sheep is. He's lost. It could be that the sheep is in danger and the hireling is not going to risk his life for an old sheep. He'll let it die. But the shepherd can't. That's part of his livelihood. And so when he finds the sheep, he puts it on his shoulders and he carries it. There's a little chorus that goes to Isaiah, four. I think it's Isaiah 41. He shall feed. His flock, like. Do you know that? He shall gather the lamb in his arms and carry them in his bosom. And that imagery that the Word of God uses about a sheep, about sheep and the shepherd that cares for them, is all throughout Old and New Testament. So Jesus takes something that's very familiar to teach a profound truth. There's joy and rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Parable 2. A woman has ten coins and she's lost one. Now, why would Jesus use the illustration of a woman? That doesn't apply to the Pharisees. They had no regard for women. It was just the men. But it appeals to the publicans and sinners, the castaways, the down and outers, the ones that people rejected, that they had no place. And she, we're not told if she's a widow, just says a woman. She had 10 coins, she lost one. Again, we go back to a culture where it wasn't like 21st century, you know, where we have... Entrepreneurial women, business owners, that was unheard of in that culture. That was 10% of her income, not only of her present income, but also of her future income. She scrubs the place, and she finally finds the lost coin. That comes with hope and reassurance. She's found it. She calls her neighbors, her friends. And they have the same reaction like the shepherd. They joy in rejoicing. And Jesus concludes, there's more joy in heaven among the angels over one sinner that repents. So it's a setup. Then we get to the third parable, the prodigal and his homecoming. And it says, a man had two sons. Not one, but two. We're only going to have enough time to look at the first one this morning. But he had two sons. And I want to take this portion and uh, look at it from the perspective of an unbelievable demand, an unbridled, unbridled departure And I forgot my third point. <laughs> and an unbelievable reconciliation. Let's take a look in, at the first part that a man had two sons. And it just went dark again here. My apologies. Okay. Starts in verse eleven. This is uh, an unbelievable demand. Not a request, it's a demand. Verse eleven. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. It wasn't a request. It was a demand. Understanding this kind of issue in the culture is really important for us because honor played such a significant role. To dishonor a father like that, essentially what the son is saying, usually the inheritance would come at the death of the father. And according, I believe it's Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 19, might be 21, that the inheritance would be divided among the children but the oldest would get double the inheritance. In this case, the older brother would get two-thirds and the younger brother would get one-third. And the younger brother, before the father is dead, is saying, give me my share. It's a demand. It's the imperative. Give it to me and give it to me now. Essentially what he is saying is, Dad, I wish you were dead. I wish you were dead so I could get the inheritance. But since you're not dead, I want it now. I want all of it now. What do you think the tax collectors were doing? How are they responding? You know how the scribes and Pharisees were responding. They were in shock. Take that kid, the Mishnah, the codification of the Mosaic law, allowed in a situation like that even to the extent of taking the life of a disrespectful son. And the scribes and Pharisees were looking at that and going I can't believe that. That kid ought to be taken. That kid ought to be manhandled and beaten. Such dishonor To his parents. Unacceptable. Then it gets worse. The next statement says. Give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And then something very peculiar happens. And he divided it. Among his children. The father gave it to him. And I read, I read this again and again and again, and, and I, it always strikes me that the older son was included here. The older son took his share, his double share, never protested. The fact of the matter is that neither the younger son or the older son loved their father. They didn't love one another. They didn't love their father. And the younger son has this unbelievable demand to take his share. Now, what's interesting is the term that Jesus uses here, that the Holy Spirit uses here in the the New American Standard. It's translated the share of the inheritance. But it's what they refer to, the Greek scholars refer to, as a hypoxlegomena. Means it's the only time it's ever. This term is ever used in the New Testament, and it's not a reference to the inheritance. The inheritance specifically refers to all of the cash value, but all of the administration that goes with it, all of the dispensation of taking care of uh, the administration of it, taking care of the slaves, taking care of the bills managing, the younger brother, the younger son, he didn't want that. The term that is used has to do, we would say it this way, cash only. I just want the cash. I just want out of here. I want to be alone. I want to declare my independence. I don't care what happens to the estate. I just want what is supposed to come to me. Now, there was loopholes in the Mishnah, that this could happen. The father could give the inheritance to his children before he died with the stipulation that the real estate and so on could not be sold until the father's death. And then you'll notice the next verse says, and not many days hence. Why do you think not many days? Why didn't he just cut, bait, and go? Because it was going to take him a little bit of time to sell off some of that inheritance, that share. He wanted cash. He wanted cash only. And he thought that the way to declare. My apologies. The way to declare his independence was by getting away from everybody. No accountability. I want to live the high life. I want to live the good life. I don't want anybody telling me what to do. I don't want my father telling me what to do. I'm not interested in the opinion of my parents. At the end times, men will be lovers of themselves, disobedient to parents. This is my declaration. Not many days hence, He departed. He divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together, cashed in, and probably, you know what? I mean, people do this all the time. They invest in futures because they get it at a good price. That's not unfamiliar to us, is it? People lose their homes in short sale. People go in and buy it at a reduced price so that later on they can cash in on it. And that's what he did. He just wanted the cash. I want the cash and I'm out of here. Not many days later, he left. He gathered everything together and he went on a journey to a distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now comes the rebellion unabridged, unmitigated rebellion. No holds barred. I'm going to live the life. And he goes out and he spent everything he has, King James says, on riotous living. Bartender drinks for everyone. All of a sudden, he's got all kinds of friends because he's got all kinds of money. Now, verse 14 When he had spent everything, there's a severe famine that occurred in that country, and he began to be impoverished. After he squandered away all of that inheritance that wasn't his to begin with, he didn't earn that money. He just took advantage of it, and he blew it, and he had nothing to show for it. And then, coincidentally, to him running out of money, there is a severe famine. And the term severe has to do with something that is extreme. And Jesus spares us the detail. But that term severe or extreme is pregnant with meaning. It means the kind of famine Where mothers eat the afterbirth. Where all kinds of carnage takes place. Severe famine. And Jesus simply says, essentially, I want you to think about this. And he began, he began to be impoverished. That tells me there was a long program involved he began to be impoverished so verse 15 consequently he went and he joined himself to one of the citizens of that country the word joined is the idea of he adhered to he glued himself why because he was all alone All alone, empty pockets, empty stomach, empty heart. No one wanted him. Uninvited, unwelcomed, rejected. Reminds me of the woman at the well. Jesus must needs go to Samaria because there was a woman there at noontime at the well everybody else is there six in the morning, six at night she's there at noontime, why? eight miles away from home, why? because she was a woman that was unwanted unwelcomed uninvited looking for love in all the wrong places and she was rejected maybe you're there this morning you're like the tax collector, sitting there listening to Jesus tell this story. And you're saying, that's me. That's me. So far from God and dead in sin. No light my heart could see. Pharisees are sitting there saying, The father should be crucified, not just the son, to let that kid get away with it. If that were my kid, I'd make... You understand? They were angry. But the tax collectors and the sinners, they were feeling it. He became such a nuisance to that man of a far country working for a Gentile that the just to get rid of him, he sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. Verse, the end of verse 15 is he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating. <laughs> It's not really a funny scene. The King James says it this way. It's memorable. That's why it's etched in my memory. He fain would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. You know, and I always had this vision of this guy out there in the fields and he's kicking the pigs and eating the food that was rightfully the pigs. One pastor says, he became a pig. The pods that are, it's translated pods here to the New American Standard. It has to do with the carob pods. Kind of like peas. They were, these were little beans, chocolate-like beans. If you go to a candy store, you'll find, you can find carob-coated raisins. And they would strip the pod like like you shuck peas take the peas out and cast the pods and the pigs were eating the pods but watch this the pigs were eating the pods and Luke adds this and no man actually Jesus said it and no man was giving him no man was giving anything to him but when he when he came to his senses, when he came to himself, when light dawned on Marblehead and he saw things for what they really were, not for what he thought they should be, he said this. How many of my father of uh, my father's hired men have more than enough bread but I'm dying here with hunger now not watch this in verse 18 I will get up what does that assume if he's going to get up it assumes that he was down he's not standing there kicking pigs out of the way there's a severe famine you know what He doesn't have any strength left. He's on his hands and knees kicking pigs out of the way rifling the pods into his mouth that are worthless. He saw things for what they really are. You might think that the answer to all your problems is to get the money and run. Unaccountable To anyone, you are your own man. You are your own woman. You're going to do the things you want to do. The only thing that's ahead for you in God's grace is a severe famine that will bring you to your senses. And the sense that this young guy came to was that he was worthless that he made big mistakes and there was nothing ahead for him except death and the scripture says that he came to his senses and he said I'll arise I'll go to my father and I'm going to say to my father I have sinned against you against heaven and earth that's the accurate evaluation that's not a poor self image brother That's an accurate image. There's circumstances. There's conviction. There's contrition. And then there's change. Those are the four elements of repentance. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat, and I'm here starving to death? I'll arise. I'll go to my father. And I'll say to my father, make me as one of your hired servants. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. He has rehearsed that over and over and over and over in his heart and mind. Why? Because it's going to take a lot of humility to admit that he was wrong. It's going to take a lot of humility in order for there to be any kind he wasn't looking for restoration he wasn't even looking to be back as part of the family he just barely wanted to live interesting to me that he never questioned whether the door would be open. Can I just take an aside here, mom and dad? Your kids, even though they've departed, do they know the door is open? I'll arise. I'll go to my father. Now, I want you to take pen if, you're, if you have your Bible, and I want you to circle every time you see the word but, B-U-T. I used to say, but always introduces a contrast. But in this context, when Jesus uses the word but, it introduces an interruption. And so, the scripture says, verse 19, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired servants. Verse 20, that little word so, so. Consequently, he got up and he came to his father, but put a circle around it. It introduces an interruption. I, I wish I could stand without falling. I don't want to do that. But here's where Jesus wanted them to engage their imagination, their thinking, both their will their intellect, and their emotion. Now get the picture. He's on his hands and knees. Maybe he's on his belly. Anybody here ever been around a pig farm? Okay. When I pastored up in northern Maine, there was a family that had a pig farm. You could tell when they were in church. That's all I'll say. Uh, You just carried the aroma. Now imagine this, it may have been months that he was doing this just to survive, and then one day, light dawns on Marblehead, and he saw things for what they really were. There was an honest appraisal and evaluation of where he was, what he was doing, and where he was and what he was doing was the consequence of his bad decisions and there was no excuse except that he had his own responsibility laying there in the pig slop maybe on his stomach maybe on his hands and knees but he's rife with all of the feces of the pigsty and he gets up and he starts to walk back slowly slowly Famished from the famine. Can barely get one leg, one foot in front of the other. Let me ask you, how do you think he's walking? You think he's walking upright and saying, huh, I wonder if that's a red squirrel. That a, What? Look at all his Not at all. There's a crouch in his step. He's hunched over. Stinks, smells, and all he can do is look at the ground, and his mind is very active. And he's wondering, what's going to happen when I get back into town, when the townspeople see me? What's going to happen when my dad sees me? I've been gone for so long. He hasn't heard from me. Maybe he's so full of rage and anger now, he's going to take my head off. Those are the things that are going through his mind as he walks. But there's an interruption. When he was a great way off. Now, verse 20. So he got up and he came to his father. But while he was a long way off, watch, underline the verbs In verse 20, his father saw him, and he felt compassion for him, physically, emotionally. He had compassion for him. Now watch this. And he ran and embraced and kissed him, head down, trudging, and all of a sudden, His concentration is broken with a sound. Now, if you'll allow me a little liberty here, I think the Father called him by name. The introduction of of contrast here is that the Father saw him, he didn't see the Father. How did the father know he was coming back? He didn't. But his arms were open. And what Jesus is saying is this. The father, every day, was looking for the son to come home. And while the son is trudging his way, the most unusual thing happens. The father's not standing there saying, hey, guess what? It's my son John. Not at all. The father saw him. And the, f- the first thing the father does is he says,
1: John! John!
0: And the son picks up his head. And he sees something. Maybe the first time in ever his life, his father has pulled up all of the robes Girding up the loins, as it were. And the scripture says that the father ran. The father's running at the son, calling him by name. All I could think of is the son stops in almost paralysis, not knowing what's going to happen. And the most unusual thing happens. The father comes. Throws his arms around him. And he kisses him. You know, like George kisses you. And he keeps kissing him. Keeps kissing him. And there's rejoicing. You think, you think the Father's crying? Of course he is. Does God the Father cry? Jesus wept. I and the Father are one. Jesus gives us kind of a peep at the heart of the Father who so longs for the restoration that he seeks it every day. Now, watch what happens. He embraced him and he kissed him. Verse 21. And the son said to him, It's almost like the son said, Father. And by the way, he calls him Abba Father. It's like he grabs the dad by the shoulder and he says, I got to get this off my chest. I got to tell you. I have sinned against heaven and earth, against heaven and in your sight, and am no longer worthy to be called your son. But circle it. The father interrupts the son. The the father would not allow him to say, Make me as one of your servants. He stops the son short of that statement. And he said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe. Now, I want you to get that. Bring out the best robe, not the guest robe. Bring out the best robe. Who owns the best robe? The Father. There is total restoration to the Son. I want you to mark that down as you think about forgiveness. There is total restoration. and he put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son of mine for this son of mine was dead and has come to life again he was lost and has been found and they began to celebrate that ends that third point There's rejoicing. There's celebration. Not because it's deserved, but it's all because of the compassion of the Father's heart. Now, I want to put all of the theological debate aside, and I want you to remember these publicans and sinners are hearing this for the first time. They're hearing it. They're not reading it. They're not reading it. They get the main thrust. They don't have the opportunity to analyze. We do. There is a Father in heaven who longs for us to come home. Who longs for you to come home. You may think in your heart right now you've gone too far. My brother Donald passed away a couple of years ago. My brother Donald was an alcoholic, several marriages, children by several different women, ended up living with a woman that he was not married to. We had, I won't go into all the detail, it would bore you, but we had lost contact. I'm the only one in my family that knows Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Later on, my father came to know the Lord. But both my parents had passed away, and, and uh, I have two half-brothers and a half-sister. My brother, half-brother Donald, was the alcoholic. I lost contact with Donald. But through the years, I had witnessed to Donald on many occasions. Donald could probably tell you the gospel better than I could tell you. He knew it. But in Donald's heart and mind, he was just too far gone for God to save him. And then one night, while I was home, we were in our home in New Hampshire. We got a call about 9:30 at night. It was my sister. I haven't heard from my sister for years. And she said, "Are you anywhere near Concord, New Hampshire?" I said, "Donna, I work in Concord." She said, well, Donald is in the hospital, the Concord hospital, and uh, don't know if he's going to make it through the night. I said, okay. Got dressed, went to the hospital. He was in a coma, unresponsive. And so I walked into the room 930 at night, and I held his hand, and I prayed with him. And I shared the gospel with him one more time. Didn't know if he could hear me. Didn't know where he was spiritually. Hadn't talked to him for years. Don, Donald, do you know that Jesus Christ died for every one of your sins? And is willing to forgive you of your sins because he's paid the penalty for those sins on the cross. And God delights in those that hope in his mercy. If you can hear me, if you can understand me, Don, Would you please call on the name of the Lord right now? Jesus said that if you call on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. No response. Went home expecting fully to get a call in the morning to say that he had passed. I got a call in the morning. It was my sister. She said, I I don't understand it. I said, what? She said, Donald just had breakfast. What? Ruth and I got in the car and We drove to the hospital, met my sister out in the driveway who was yet unsaved, walked in, talked to Donald. Couldn't get a clear affirmation or understanding. But he was awake. We carried on conversation. I prayed with him again. We went home. He died that night. Now, I don't know. I honestly don't know if I'm going to see my brother in heaven. Find out when we get there. What I'm saying to you is this. I am convinced in my heart that was one more display of God's long suffering and patience. What's happened between my brother and the Lord is up to them. All I'm saying is this. There is always hope as long as there is breath. If you think you've overstepped the, the bounds of grace and fallen short of the lines of mercy, you're wrong. There is a wideness in God's mercy. Now, there are two takeaways from this portion. i got to wrap it up. I want to get done on time. There are two takeaways. One is this. I believe Jesus gives us this parable because, number one, We are to love like God loves. All of the theological debates aside, our primary task is to rescue the perishing and care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. We ought to love like God loves. Here's the second one. We ought to seek the things that God seeks. What does God seek? Well, John 4 says, He seeks a true worshiper. They that will worship him in spirit and true. Of such the Father seeks. Father seeks such to worship him. First Chronicles, He sought for a man to stand in the gap, but he could find none. Isaiah says, to this man will I look, to him who has both a humble spirit, a humble and contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. That's who he's looking for. That's who he seeks. And then Jesus says this, I came to seek and to what? Save those who are lost. We had an interesting conversation last night with some good brethren. And the idea is we have gotten so globally concerned about health care, even about missions. But somehow, locally, we've become an ink. We're so concerned about people in the far flung corners of the world who have never heard the gospel, but we've never taken the time to witness to our next door neighbor. We need to seek the things that God seeks. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. There is a Father who loves and seeks us and seeks us to repent. And there's more rejoicing in all of heaven over one sinner that comes to Christ will you come to Christ this morning maybe you've warmed a pew in this building for years but you've never repented of your sin and you've never exercised faith personally in Jesus Christ for your personal regeneration would you do that right now right where you are in your own words, I don't know how you say it, how you do it, you just invite Jesus Christ. It's interesting to me that when, the, when Jesus told other parables about the publican and the Pharisee, the publican said, be merciful. He didn't ask forgiveness because forgiveness was the byproduct of God's genuine mercy. And mercy means God giving to us, God withholding from us what we justly deserve. Jesus says, Paul says, they that call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We need to pray. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of salvation in the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And Father, if there is even one let alone many that need to come to you now, would you do that drawing that only you can do? That they would leave today with a full assurance of hope that they've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have been saved. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ. Run from your sin and run to the cross, I ask, Father, in your precious name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.